A top artificial intelligence expert in the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations is leaving government. Deputy U.S. Chief Technology Officer Lynn Parker, also director of the White House's National Artificial Intelligence Initiative Office, is returning to academia after seven years of federal service. She helped stand up the National AI Initiative Office last year to oversee work on a national strategy. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Parker about her work. Importantly now, agencies are acting on these reports and they're implementing the ideas. And bottom line is that the agencies have built up their capacity and prioritization of AI and its use in their agencies. And they put a lot of thought into how they can best use the technology to advance their missions and to think about how they uh, use AI responsibly to make sure that no harms are going to result from their use. So as they implement these ideas, they're making important and consistent progress in their responsible development and use of AI. So there's a fairly radical amount of additional work that has happened over the last small number of years. And I think just looking at this progress indicates how much advance has really happened across the federal government. We, of course, have heard a lot about the National AI Research Resource, or NAIR, and we're going to see a final report on that, I believe, in the fall in November. Just being a little forward-looking here, given your leadership of the NAIR, how do you see that being an important AI R&D resource for the federal government and the R&D efforts across the U.S.? A current challenge these days is that The pathways into AI research are too often accessible only by a limited few researchers. These are the researchers who have access to large-scale computational and data resources. Typically, that's large technology companies or well-resourced universities or national labs. So for the United States to sustain its leadership in AI R&D, it's essential that we enable the full and diverse talent of the nation to contribute to this AI innovation ecosystem. So by expanding and democratizing access to these resources, be they computational or data or test beds, and doing that through this national AI research resource, we can leverage and empower the entire AI R&D community from across the nation to explore these new ideas and innovations uh, that will benefit the American public. Okay. And of course, another key pillar of all of this is making sure that agencies have the right AI talent, that this is a pool of experts that are very much in demand across the private sector, the public sector, you name it. How can the federal government help diversify the pool of talent that researches AI and gets the best and brightest to work on this issue? It's not a new challenge, and it's a continuing challenge for the last many years. And it's something that needs a multi-pronged approach, an approach that helps build up our AI talent for the nation as a whole. So that would include the government, but it's also uh, academic and industry as well. As it relates to the federal government, there are a number of actions that are underway that I hope will help. For example, OPM is taking steps to establish or update an occupational series for AI. They will also be working on identifying rotational programs and how they can be used to expand the number of employees with AI expertise at the agencies. And so that's some beginning steps that are are helping. They're ongoing. and, And I think that will help identify what the need is as well as provide mechanisms that can encourage people to join uh, the federal government in these areas. The GSA has also expanded the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program to establish an AI track, and that's to attract experts from industry and academia to a period of work within the federal government. 
that program has also been very successful in bringing in uh, tremendous experts into the agencies to help in many ways. But of course, this is a challenge for the nation as a whole. So to diversify the pool of AI researchers across the country, I've mentioned how the, the NAIR, the National AI Research Resource, is expected to have a beneficial impact by expanding the diversity of experts from across the country that are able to engage in AI R&D. And through that, we'll have the opportunity to learn about AI and become experts, even if they're not the deep experts that go on maybe to teach in these fields. I think it would also help for the nation as a whole if we modernized our K-12 curricula across the country to introduce students to concepts in AI and to spark their imagination. It's very much about helping people to understand how AI can be used to solve important challenges. And I think addressing those important challenges speaks to many young people today, and challenges include improving healthcare or discovering new approaches to clean energy or better predict and mitigate emerging pandemics or improving the quality of education or making our cities and communities more sustainable, creating more resilient agriculture approaches. And there's just so many areas in which AI can help. And I think inspiring students with all of the positive potential of AI to address these tough challenges can do a better job of attracting more talent to enter and contribute to these fields. And then by having these pathways for learning about AI and then entering government or the workforce or going deeper into academia, I think can help build up this talent that we very much need across the nation. Of course, when we talk about AI, it's usually brought up in the context of, you know, this global space race, the near peer competition of staying on top of other nations that are also expending a ton of resources on this. How do you think the federal government is doing in terms of staying competitive globally when it comes to AI research and development? And what do you see as more steps being needed to stay on top of that competition? I think it's imperative as a nation that we continue to invest in long-term, cutting-edge, and multidisciplinary AI research. This would enable uh, new discoveries that advance not only the technical capabilities of AI itself, perhaps in a computer science setting, but also the transformational capacity of AI across all sectors of society. So this is about AI plus some discipline and how we can advance in all of those areas. Lynn Parker, the Deputy U.S. Chief Technology Officer and Director of the White House's National AI Initiative Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, 
And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, 
And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.